friends. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and uh, a joy to open God's Word and continue working through the Gospel of John together. Uh, This morning we come to not necessarily the most famous passage in John's Gospel, but certainly the most famous verse and one of the most famous phrases as well. Uh, the verse is, of course, John 3.16, right? May, might be the, the most famous verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the phrase is like it, uh, the phrase born again. We hear that phrase a lot. People talk about born again Christians. Uh, we know the phrase And we know the verse, even if we didn't know that they came from this particular story. Uh, In fact, sometimes we're so familiar with the verse and the phrase that it's hard to figure out how they fit into the very story that we see. We're used to them floating around in the wild all by themselves, right? We we see John 3.16 on a placard at a football game or on a t-shirt or a billboard, and then, you know, we we see it in, in its native context in John 3, and we're curious, how does it fit in here? Or, or the phrase born again is even more slippery. I mean, that, that phrase gets used to mean all sorts of different things in the world around us. Everything from a, a political voting block to uh, a religious fundamentalist to somebody with a really dramatic conversion story. And yet here, Jesus says everyone must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so to make sense of these familiar phrases, uh, we need to enter into the story in which we find them. And when we do that, uh, this, this story, uh, what we find is not simply the answer to our curiosities. Uh, what we find here is a display of the very glory of Jesus the Messiah, who doesn't just answer our questions, but who answers our true and greatest need in life, which is to be born again, to be spiritually changed by God from above. And so John's gospel, as we work our way through it so far, uh, we've, we've seen Jesus just beginning to go public with his ministry, right? The beginning of chapter two, we saw his first sign where he turns water into wine. Uh, and then after that, last week, we saw uh, what happened when he showed up in, into Jerusalem and found a shopping mall outside the temple or within its courts. He cleared it out and drove away everyone who was defaming God's house. And even there, people were interested in his signs. Like That was what the religious leaders asked him uh, to prove he was who he says he was or to prove that he actually had the authority to do what he did. What sign do you give us, Right? Now, by the end of chapter 2, we read that in verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Kind of, right? You know, Jesus, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them. They were drawn to Jesus because of his signs, but he knew what was really going on in their hearts. That's how chapter 2 landed. And now as we get to chapter 3, we get to meet one of those people who was drawn to Jesus because of his signs, even though his heart might not be where it ought to be. Uh, We meet this man who was intrigued enough by Jesus to to seek him out for a private conversation, though as we're going to see, that conversation is woefully constrained by this man's earthly categories. 
and yet, even though you know, there's this kind of distance there, this, this constraint, his earthly categories, what we're going to see is the love of Christ that still continues to pursue this man who, who doesn't let him stay trapped in his categories, but instead he resets the conversation in order to reveal his true and greatest need for spiritual rebirth and then goes beyond that to realize that need through the cross and the resurrection. So that's what unfolds before us with the story of Nicodemus. And we'll start in verses 1 to 3 where Jesus resets the conversation. If you look again at verse 1 where we meet uh, the man in question, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you meet Nicodemus, right? He, he's, John introduces him to us as one of the religious elite of first century Judaism, right? He's, he's described first as a Pharisee. So that was the religious leaders who were responsible for uh, teaching and guarding God's law. And then he describes him as a ruler of the Jews, which most likely refers to uh, him being a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. That was the highest ruling court in uh, Jewish and Israelite society, the highest legal body. And yet, for one who's such a religious elite, he seems genuinely intrigued by Jesus, enough to seek him out, right? Now, just because he's intrigued does not mean that he senses any real need for Jesus, uh, he's certainly more open to him than most Pharisees that we meet in the Gospels, right? I mean, if you think of the different stories in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or even later in John, usually what happens when the Pharisees show up is it's kind of this like verbal brawl, right? They're just they they they're so threatened by Jesus that they just attack him. They, you know, Nicodemus at least he doesn't accuse Jesus of of performing his signs by Beelzebub, like what happens in Matthew's Gospel, right? Uh, so he's, he's genuinely intrigued, yet he's also very cautious. Notice how he goes to him at nighttime. He doesn't want to risk being seen asking Jesus questions, yet he's also very self-confident. He, he, we don't get the impression from John that, that he's going there to learn anything necessarily, or at least not to learn anything about the kingdom. He, he's got the kingdom figured out. What he's doing is, is giving Jesus a, a chance to explain himself to somebody who knows how it all works and, and tell him, how do you actually fit into this? His compliment in, in verse 2 is, is in really an implied question, right? Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless, you, unless God is with him. So who are you? Like, why are you doing these signs? He wants to know more about who Jesus is and how he fits into the kingdom of God that I already know so well. That's kind of the posture. But notice how Jesus doesn't answer the question that he implies. Instead, he, he creates a, a, an extremely awkward moment by changing the subject. He makes this statement in verse 3, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again,' He cannot see the kingdom of God. You want to kill a polite conversation. Like just somebody asks you a question. I say to you, and that, 
you can almost hear the gears grinding in Nicodemus's, you know, head. Where's this coming from? Why? And why does Jesus do that? Like he's so gentle and 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 patient with so many of the people who encounter him. Why is he so abrupt here and and kind of direct? Well, the answer, I think, is that Jesus knows exactly what Nicodemus needs to be able to see him clearly. And what he needs is to be having an entirely different conversation than the one he came to have. He's bringing up the wrong subject. A conversation that, frankly, Nicodemus isn't even ready to have because he doesn't have the right categories in place. Uh, The problem with Nicodemus is that he thinks he knows things that he doesn't actually know. Right? He thinks he knows things. Listen, you know, the way he speaks. We know that you are, you know, he speaks as one who's got things figured out. We know these things. All he really needs in this moment is for Jesus to explain himself. That's what he thinks he needs. But despite his certainty as a teacher of the law, his earthly categories are, fall woefully short of being able to comprehend God's heavenly kingdom. He doesn't know what he thinks he knows. It, it's kind of like talking to a child about complex scientific things, right? So, you know, when one of our girls was uh, back in preschool, we, we asked her, where do babies come from? And she answered with great conviction and certainty that Jesus puts the baby in mommy's tummy, and then mommy has the baby, and that's where babies come from, and that's all there is to it. To which I answered, amen. That is exactly how it works, right? Now, if I had tried to correct my daughter and give her a more precise, you know, description, which, I, of course, I wouldn't do at that age, but if for some silly reason I tried to explain zygotes and embryos and all that kind of stuff, she wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. She, did, she was a preschooler with a preschool understanding of the world, which is exactly where she needed to be. But that did not allow her to comprehend these deeper scientific understandings of things. And yet, with her preschool framework, she operated with great conviction and certainty. She knew how it worked, right? Which was wonderfully cute, though not particularly informed, right? That's where Nicodemus is. That's where he is with respect to God's kingdom. He assumes he's got it figured out, and he holds his understanding with great conviction and certainty such that all he really needs is for Jesus to tell him where he fits in. And when you think about it, we all do this with God's kingdom, right? We all do this. We, we have certain ideas about how the kingdom of God works, and we can hold those ideas with deep conviction and, and certainty, only to find ourselves confused and, and even shocked when Jesus goes and does something or says something that just doesn't seem very Christian to us, Right? You know, for instance, you know, for many today, the kingdom of God is all about love. And love is all about ensuring that everyone is, you know, uh, unconditionally affirmed in whatever they think and however they feel, especially with regard to gender and sex. And then Jesus shows up speaking against sexual immorality and talking about how marriage is anchored in God's created design for one man and one woman, and we think, that's just not very Christian, right? I'm not sure I can be seen with this guy. I might have to find him at nighttime and get him to explain himself. Or 
Others, for others, the kingdom of God is all about holiness. And holiness means keeping the commandments, doing what is right, reading your Bible, praying daily, keeping your nose clean, at least cleaner than that guy's over there, right? That's holiness. And then we see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And we're outraged. And we demand an explanation. That's not very Christian. Or, you know, for some of us, still others, the kingdom of God is all about humanitarian ethics, right? It's just, it's just doing good for your neighbor, right? It's, it's advancing the brotherhood of all humanity, defending the marginalized. And, and then you overhear Jesus saying something like, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we think, that's not very Christian. That's so exclusive. Certainly, he couldn't have meant what I thought I heard him say. He better give me an explanation. Right? We do this. We, it's so easy to think we've got God's kingdom figured out, such that Jesus just, all we need is for him to explain to us how he fits in, how he's relevant. And of course, we'll be the judges of how relevant we think he is. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? Right? His ways are not our ways. We have our earthly categories, but God operates from heaven. As he says in Isaiah 55, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And until we realize that, that his kingdom is operating on a completely different plane than what we assume, there's really no conversation to be had. Like we just lack the categories to get it. And so in his love, Jesus resets the conversation. Nicodemus thought he wanted to talk about one thing. Jesus knows we really need to be talking about something else. So he grabs the emergency brake on Nicodemus's train of thought and, and, and switches the tracks for him abruptly. Uh, to get him on a different track where, second, he's going to reveal his need. So he resets the conversation in order to reveal his true need. That's why he changes the subject. He's not just being obnoxious or, or flexing his theological muscles in front of one of Israel's teachers. He, in his love, is exposing a hidden problem and the real need of Nicodemus and frankly, everyone who would see the kingdom of God, our greatest and truest need to be born again for spiritual renewal. So if you look again where, where Jesus kind of turns the conversation, verse 3, he answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, watching Nicodemus's reaction is just, uh, it's wonderful. It's, it's so what I would have done. Like, he's just completely lost. For one who thought he had the kingdom figured out, now he's being told he can't even see it. That's kind of a shot. But then he has no clue what Jesus is actually talking about when he says he has to be born again. He takes it uber literally. Uh, verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Like, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He has no clue. Uh, he, he, Jesus is using a spiritual metaphor, and he's taking it as this kind of physical, concrete thing. And so, Jesus reiterates his point. He says it again in a slightly different way in verse 5. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 5, Nicodemus is not the only person confused by what Jesus is saying in verse 5. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Uh, A lot of people have kind of wrestled with what exactly he's talking about there. Some some think that maybe being born of water refers to natural birth, and then being born of the Spirit refers to spiritual birth. Um, Possible but unlikely, because the water is never used as a metaphor that way in the Bible, as a metaphor for for natural human birth. Um, Others suggest that maybe it's talking about baptism, born of water and spirit. Maybe that's talking about baptism, which again is, is pretty unlikely because the emphasis here is not on a religious ritual, but on the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Moreover, uh, Nicodemus, he gets chided in verse 10 for not knowing what Jesus is talking about, and it would be really weird to kind of uh, correct him for misunderstanding a religious practice that hadn't really begun to be practiced yet, right? Christian baptism hasn't really started yet, and so it's very unlikely that he's talking about baptism. Far more likely... Uh, Born of water and the Spirit, in verse 5, is just another way of saying born again in in verse 3, or born from above, which is another way to translate that. He's talking about the same thing, just using different words to describe it. In fact, there's a parallel construction between the two. Like, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about new spiritual birth. And and missing that point, that is something that Nicodemus could be chided for. Because as the teacher of Israel, he should have understood that's exactly what God's people need and what God promised to do for them. This is where the story's been going all along. In fact, Jesus is, is using language from the Old Testament prophets of God's promise to cleanse and renew his people who had rebelled against him. Uh, Promises like Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what Nicodemus thought he needed was Jesus to explain himself. What he truly needed was radical spiritual transformation. Salvation from heaven. To be changed by God's spirit from the inside out. That was his true and greatest need. And that, the same thing is true for all of us. For all of us. It's so easy to think that I'm basically good to go. Like maybe I need a, a slight adjustment. Maybe I need to try harder at this or that. But otherwise, I'm pretty good to go in my relationship with God. It's so easy to think that. Uh, that we generally have it all together, and God, frankly, should be happy to have us on our team, and all the better if I can find something for his son to do. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids want to help you with dinner, and you try and figure out, 
Well, I guess you can, you can do this part. That's, we're good, and if we want, we'll find something for Jesus to do to help. That's not at all what we need, right? We, what we need is not for Jesus to prove His relevance, but for His Spirit to renovate our hearts. That's what we need. What we need is not a simple correction. We need complete transformation to be made new. Because the reality is, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin and separated from God. And no amount of human effort, no ethnic heritage, no humanitarian service, no moral reform, no religious ritual can cleanse us of our sin or replace our sinful hearts. We can't do this from below. We need God above to step in and give us a salvation that is entirely from heaven and not from earth. I mean, if, if an organ in your body goes dead, not just wonky, but dead, you can't leave it in there and just try and tweak it, right? You've got to get it out of there and replace it with something new. Apart from Jesus, our souls are dead. We need God to take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. We need not just an earthly tune-up. We need a spiritual transplant. We need salvation from above, a new life in Christ. We must be born again. We, we need the one whom John promised, John the Baptist promised in chapter 1, who's going to baptize by the Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. New spiritual birth, to be regenerated, born again, to live by God's Spirit. As Jesus says in verse 6, natural birth makes us part of the human family, but only spiritual birth can make us part of God's family. And, and it's a secret birth that you can't really see, right? It's not like going down to, you know, Mercy Hospital in the baby ward and, oh, obviously there's new physical life. It's the secret thing that happens in the hidden heavenly realm where God gives us new life. You can't see it happen, but you can see the results of it when it happens. You can feel the results of it when it happens. It's, it's, Jesus describes it in verse 8. It's like the wind that blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it, go, where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. God reaches into our hearts in that hidden inward being and, and takes out that heart of stone ruined by sin and replaces it with a heart of flesh made new and indwelled with His Spirit. And only then can we see and enter God's kingdom. Only then can we actually live the life we were created to live in fellowship and union with our Lord. And this is not just Nicodemus's appeal, or excuse me, this is not just Jesus's appeal to Nicodemus. It's his appeal to all of us. Unless anyone is born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's his invitation to all of us to turn from sin and be born anew by God's Spirit. But how does that work? And how is it even possible? Like, this is this is 
it's impossible to wrap our heads around. And, and when you think about how, how sinful we are apart from Jesus, it's hard to even know, like, how could, how could God's spiritual renewal be enough to truly cleanse our lives? How does this work? That's basically Nicodemus's final question in the conversation. And Jesus answers it not only with words, but ultimately realizes that need through the cross and resurrection. So we come to verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I mean, he, he still does not get it. How is this possible, this new spiritual birth that you're talking about? Again, it's, it's like a five-year-old trying to you know, explain human birth. He just does not have the categories to understand and explain spiritual birth. But it's not an intellectual problem. And that's important to understand. It's not that Nicodemus just wasn't smart enough. He was the teacher of Israel, right? It's not that he wasn't smart enough. It's a spiritual problem. He was blinded by sin. He was stuck in his lack of humility and lack of submission to the one who actually knows what he's talking about. It's interesting when you look at verses 10 to kind of 12, and you compare that to what Nicodemus says to Jesus first, we know you're a teacher, and so on and so forth. Well, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't get this. We know what we're talking about here, right? Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Which is kind of a kind of a cold shutdown when you think about it. He comes to Jesus asking for clarity, and Jesus, you, you can't get it. But you think about what Jesus has done in moving Nicodemus along. When Nicodemus started the conversation, he knew everything. Now he knows nothing, and that's progress when you think you know things that you don't actually know. Jesus is moving him along to get, to him, get him to the place where he can actually see Jesus for who he truly is, which meant first unlearning some things and now seeing Christ clearly. And even though he's still not taking it all on board, Jesus does go on to answer his question, again, not simply with words, but ultimately with his own life. How is this possible? Because Jesus the Messiah is here. That's how new birth is possible. The time of Israel's spiritual renewal has come because the one person qualified to bring it has arrived. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So how is new spiritual birth possible? It's possible because the Son of Man, God's eternal Son, who is at His side in creation for all eternity, who then steps into His creation, taking on human flesh, it's possible and only possible because that Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross. Because Jesus dies... For us, we can live. Because he dies and is raised in new life, 
we can have new spiritual life. It is the cross and resurrection that makes being born again possible. Jesus alludes here, uh, as, he's, as he's explaining this, to an event that happens back in Numbers 21, where ancient Israel had rebelled against God in the wilderness, and he sends this plague on them uh, as, as punishment for that rebellion. Well, Israel finds safety and refuge from God's wrath by looking up to this bronze serpent that God told Moses to make and to hold up, to lift it up. And when they looked at the serpent, they were healed. Well, in this, it, it's a picture of salvation that's entirely dependent on God. Israel does nothing, contributes nothing. They look to the serpent, and God heals them. In the same way, our rescue from God's wrath, it's God, our, our rescue from God's wrath against our sin, our, and, and receiving new eternal life in place of that wrath, it is only possible for those who look to Jesus. It's not what we do from earth below. It's what He accomplishes according to heaven's plans in our place, being lifted up on the cross for our sin. Jesus doesn't just reveal Nicodemus' real need. He meets it. He realizes that real need in his love. For God so loved the world. In this way, God loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world would be saved through him. Jesus meets our true and greatest need. God meets it out of his love. And that need not just for, for an earthly tune-up, but for complete spiritual renovation. And friends, that salvation, this promise, this invitation is available to everyone who believes. It's not just, yeah, I've, I've, I've gone to church and paid my dues. And, and it's certainly not, well, I've sinned too much and I'll never be able to, to make it up. Whoever believes, whoever, that's the word, whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's an absolutely incredible invitation because it's not about what we do, but what Christ has done for us. And so therefore it can be offered to everyone because he's done the work. He's done the work. And apart from faith in Christ, we remain under God's condemnation. That's the other side of the coin. He came to save us from that condemnation, but if we don't take hold of him, we're not saved from that condemnation. Right? Verse 18 tells us that whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We need... you know. Without a spiritual transplant, we're not just spiritually dead now. We will remain forever spiritually dead and separated from God. We need Christ to intervene, to give us that new life. And, and sadly, that, that sense of that darkness and rebellion, sadly, many linger there and remain in that dark place rather than coming to Christ he, he explains in verses 19 to 21, despite the fact that the light has dawned, like the answer to all of our problems, all of our sin, 
all of our shame, that light has dawned. Despite that fact, so many love darkness because their deeds are evil. Because to, to come into the light is to risk exposure. It's to risk shame, or worse, it's to risk having to change. And I don't know if I want to change. And yet, to stay in the darkness is to stay under a death sentence. It's to stay under the condemnation of God. And when in fact, like, the very thing we need most, the freedom from guilt, the freedom from shame, the freedom from our sin, real satisfaction in life, everything we need most is actually out there in the light. That's where God is calling us. Because through faith in Jesus, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, that He rose again, and placing the full weight of our hope and trust in Him, there is rescue from God's wrath. There is new life. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Think about that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. We do not have, if we have Jesus, if we're united with him by faith, born again by his spirit, we don't have to fear the light. We don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to fear bringing it out into the open because it's been dealt with and Christ has made us new. We're set free. We are radically changed. We are born from above filled with His Spirit to walk in newness of life. Jesus came to answer our true and greatest need in life for radical spiritual transformation from above. And He calls all of us to trust Him and to walk in that life. And that's my prayer for us. Wherever we're at, whether, whether I've trusted Christ already, that I would, that I would enjoy and, and linger in the light, that I would want to be in the light of His presence, resting in His love and in the life that He's given me by His Spirit, not trying to walk in my own flesh, but walking by the Spirit of God who's within me, that, that, I would, that that's where I would be. And if I haven't trusted Christ, that, that today would be that day of salvation, that that new birth that, that, that invisible thing that the Holy Spirit does where the light just clicks and holy cow, this is real and Jesus is king. Whoa. That's my prayer for us, that we would all see Jesus clearly. But if you're still confused, like even if maybe you're still like Nicodemus, kind of scratching your head at what in the world is Jesus talking about? If if you're not there yet, take heart. Nicodemus didn't get it at the end of this story. In fact, he walked away more confused than when he showed up. But we meet him again in John's gospel. We meet him in chapter 7, where he gets in trouble with the Pharisees by suggesting that they ought to give Jesus a fair trial before they just kill him. And then we see him again later in chapter 19. After Jesus' crucifixion, when he was lifted up that he might draw all men to himself, there were two men who came and took Jesus' body to anoint it and to bury it. 
Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's amazing. Now, we, we don't know when the penny dropped for Nicodemus, but we know at some point he became a follower of Christ, even after that train wreck conversation at the beginning. And I can't help but wonder if when he saw the Son of Man lifted up like that serpent in the wilderness, if that's when his earthly categories finally gave way and heaven's love was clear. And he saw Jesus with eyes of faith and believed. And oh, that, that our earthly categories would give way for all of us, that we would truly see Jesus, to see his glory, to know his love, and to find in him the answer to our true and greatest need in this life, to be born again by his Spirit, made new from above. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, how absolutely incredible is it that you did not leave us in our sin, fumbling around, trying to find our way forward, but that you revealed yourself from on high. You sent your Son to do for us what we could never and would never do for ourselves. You didn't leave us in our spiritual death, but you sent your Son to give us new life. God, we praise you for that, and I pray that we would walk in the newness of life. Lord, make us new and renew us daily for the sake of your Son and his glory. Amen.